Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You may recall from last Lord's Day that these verses, which are all one sentence in the original Greek, fall naturally into two parts, blessings and duties. Blessings and duties. The preacher begins in verses 19 to 21 by summarizing the blessings that Christian believers have through the work of Christ. So these two blessings are a summary of many of the preceding chapters. There are two of these blessings that he names. The right to enter heavenly worship, verses 19 to 20, and the help of a great high priest. Verse 21. Then in verses 22 to 25, he gives three duties or exhortations that are rooted in these blessings. These commands all begin with, let us. You saw them, verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider. And also we noticed that each duty is closely connected with a specific and major grace, faith, hope, and love. The continuing to draw near that we are to do is to be done in faith. The holding fast is to our hope. We are to consider one another with a goal of love being done. So the big picture is two blessings, three duties, and their matching grace. Now, this morning, I just want us to look at the second of these duties. It's found in verse 23 and I'll present it to you under three headings. First, the content of hope. Secondly, the duty to hope or toward hope. And thirdly, the reason for hope. Again, fix your attention on verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. So first, the content of our hope. This is found in the middle of the verse where it says, depending on your translation, the confession of our hope, or perhaps it says uh, the, the hope 
which we profess, what's vital right from the beginning is to understand that hope in this verse and all throughout the book of Hebrews always means the content of hope, the object of hope, the stuff, the, the fill of hope. It's what we're hoping for, not the internal sense or desire that we call hope. Hope here is the promises of God referenced later in this verse. Hope is the things hoped for in chapter 11, verse 1. Hope is what is set before us back in chapter 6 that you may recall. This hope is outside of us. This hope consists in all the promises of God yet unfilled for the Christian. Hope, this hope, consists, again, in all the promises of God still future for the Christian. And because it is outside of us, Christian hope is certain, not uncertain. It is hope because it's future. It's not hope because it is doubtful. <laughs> because every promise of God is sure. And of course, we're talking about promises in the context of a covenant where they're not only sure just because it's God saying it, but he has actually sworn that these promises are true. Hope here is not a feeling of expectation, although doubtlessly the Hebrews had that, and that's a right and proper subject. Hope here is not referring to an optimistic desire that something positive might happen. Although again, of course, that's not bad. It's just not what hope means here. This idea that hope here is objective, that is, it's the content of hope, not sub subjective, that is, the feeling of hope, is confirmed by the phrase, the confession of our hope. You see, this hope is one we profess. It is a confession. This hope is something we can name or list or declare. This is something we can claim as a believer. It's a confession of hope. Now, back in chapter 4, verse 14, we learned that Christians have a confession of faith. In other words, there are certain things that Christians have to believe to be a Christian. Well, hope, like faith, has content as well. Hope here is not a baseless, empty wish of positive thinking. Instead, it's the promises of God told to us in Scripture that make up your personal eschatology, your personal future. What do I mean by personal eschatology? Well, that's the name we give to the question, what happens to me when I see Christ, either through death or his return? What happens to me when I see Christ? It's your future viewed spiritually and individually. This isn't eschatology in the big broad sense of what will God do in the future with all of creation. 
This is about your place in that big, broad future. This is about your death and judgment, whether you will be in heaven or hell, whether your raised body will be in blessedness eternally or in misery forever. Now, in saying this is your personal eschatology, your personal future, and promises about that, we're not saying that your hope is unique to you. Notice how hope is described in our text. It's our hope. It's the church's hope. It's believers' hope. This is a hope that's shared by all Christians. It's the common hope of the true people of God. So let's get to the heart of this matter. What is the content of hope? What's, what makes up our confession of hope? What is it that we are professing in hope? Well, ultimately it's this. The return of Jesus Christ with full salvation for his people. That's the hope here. The return of Jesus Christ with full salvation for his people. This is the hope we confess as Christians. Back in chapter 4 of Hebrews, it was described as the promise of entering God's rest. The older you get, the more rest in heaven, eternal rest. That sounds wonderful. Real rest. In chapter 6, it's the promise of of the resurrection of the dead, and it's called inheriting the promises. That's what our, where our hope is placed. Our hope is that Christ has made a way for us to draw near to God and forever be with him in that holy place called heaven. That's our faith, that's our hope for the future. It's our faith because we believe God. That same thing is our hope because it's future. Hope is very closely related to faith. It's not identical, but it's built on faith. Our hope is that we will not just be saved from certain troubles in this life, but that Christ is able to save us to the uttermost Chapter 7, verse 25, that's our hope. Our hope is that Christ has secured an eternal redemption and we are simply waiting for its fullness to be poured out upon us by his hand when he returns. It is according to chapter 9, verse 28, our hope is that Christ will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So now we look for all his enemies to be put under his feet. Chapter 10, verse 13, according to God the Father's promise to his son. So this is our hope that we confess. Christ is returning with complete salvation for believers. Hope is the anticipation of faith for the completion of new covenant salvation in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Hope is the anticipation of faith 
for the completion of new covenant salvation in Jesus Christ. What faith sees in the promises of God and believes, hope is that part that we haven't yet possessed. We, we haven't experienced it yet. It's hope. So that's the content of hope. It's objective. It's something we can profess or confess. It's the promises of God, especially regarding Christ's return and the rest of our salvation. Secondly, there is in this verse a duty toward hope. The fact that there is hope doesn't stand alone. It means that there's something, in some way we have to relate to it. Verse 23 begins, let us hold fast. Literally, let us continually grip tightly. The confession of our hope. So what is this verse asking for? Are we supposed to write down a confessional document that lists all the things that we believe about Christ's return and then grab that and put it to our chest and just squeeze really hard? No, 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 of course. He's, he's not really talking about a physical gripping, is he? He's talking about a gripping by faith. He's saying, you believe the promises of God. Hold tightly to them. No, they're not all here yet. That's why it's hope. But you keep on believing. This call to grip to hold fast, a word he's used multiple times in Hebrews. He seems to like it. It's, of course, the opposite of falling away from the faith, from Jesus Christ, from the true God. Holding fast is not a physical holding. It's a mentally gripping of these truths. It's hope. It's to believe, as the verse goes on to say, without wavering in the promises of God for our future. To hold fast requires that we learn these promises from scripture, accept them as true, and then of course entrust ourselves to them in Jesus Christ. If we are to hold fast our hope, we must not let go of truths that make up our hope. This is why, to the surprise of many, Paul will say things like, um, there are those who are outside the faith because they don't believe in the bodily return of Christ or they don't believe in the resurrection. You say, well, what's the big deal about just getting a doctor? Here's what's wrong. It's related to our faith. The content of hope is our faith. The truths that God's given us, you have to get them right. You have to know who God is. You have to know who Jesus Christ is. You have to know who you are as a sinner. You have to know what Christ has done for you as a sinner. You have to know not only what he has done, but what he will do. You need to believe that. That's what our hope is on. So you can be so wrong in your faith or in your hope in that future sense. You're mistaken about being right with God. 
we have to believe without wavering the promises of God. This duty is actually a call for us to be like God. We, we find that where it says at the, in the middle of the verse, we're to hold on fast without wavering. This is a word that's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. And in the literature outside of the Bible, this word unwavering is almost always used to describe God as unchanging or immutable. Something far above us. And yet, by the power of Christ's spirit at work in us, we can imitate at least in some way. We don't have to waver. We can keep on believing. We can grip tightly and not let go. We can believe the truths of God about our future salvation in Jesus. We don't have to abandon them. This call urges us to be unchanging in our commitment to hope in the promises of God. We are supposed to be stable or steadfast in the truths that make up our, make up our hope. And every true believer can do this. I don't mean you can be perfect, but I mean you can keep on believing. Why from the book of Hebrews would we think that? Let me say and encourage you by what I've said and encouraged you, I, I trust, before out of this book. Remember the point of the new covenant. Why is it better? Because the things it demands, it provides. All of the duties that are a part of it, God has given grace in the new covenant for you to perform it. So you are not doomed to believe once and then fall away from faith. You are not doomed to, to hope for a moment or two and then never hope again. You are actually able to look forward to the return of Christ and eagerly await him. And when you do that, oh, not perfectly, but truly, with the heart, from the heart, from the changed heart that God's given you as a gift from the new covenant, you will stay firmly in hope. Because Jesus Christ holds you fast, you can hold fast to hope. Many of us love that hymn. Because we understand that if salvation depended on us by ourselves holding on to God, we'd all be damned. We would all be lost. But Christ holds us. And he gives us the spirit of grace. <laughs> Does that mean we never falter? No. We never backslide in a, in a certain sense? That we never forget? That we never doubt? That we ne no, it doesn't mean that. It does mean, though, that grace upon grace keeps coming to us and we return. We keep believing. We keep hoping. So you can do this. You can keep holding fast. You can even do this 
without wavering. Part of why you can do that is because your hope isn't in how strong your hope is. Just like you don't get saved by how strong your faith is and therefore you have faith in faith. That's nonsense, right? Our faith has an object. Our faith is, Jesus, is in Jesus Christ. Well, our hope has an object. And the object of our hope isn't our own subjective hope. Oh, we have that. We feel that. Praise God. We know that. But it's up and down. It varies. But our hope is in Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the promises of God. So there is no reason to waver. Yes, if we look at ourselves, we're going to waver. Am I a Christian? Am I not? Am I strong enough? Am I not? Should I do? But that's why it's so important to recognize that the content of our hope isn't ourselves. It isn't our own hope. It's not our own emotional state. It's not our frame of mind. It's the word of God in person and inscripturated. It's the promise of God. So you don't have to hope in your weak hope. You can hope in the strong promises and infallible word of God, Jesus Christ. That's our duty toward hope. That's the content of hope, the duty toward hope, and finally the reason for hope. This verse gives us two grounds of hope. Undoubtedly, we could divide uh, this in other ways and find more, but there are two here. The first is that God is a promiser of good things in Christ, right? We see this at the end of the verse. He who promised is faithful. God does not have to promise man anything. He is under no obligation to do him any good whatsoever. He doesn't have to speak to us in the Bible. But not only does he speak, he makes promises to those who believe. This is what the new covenant is. It's the sworn promise of God that everyone who believes will be fully, eternally safe in Jesus Christ in the glorious presence of God. A second reason for hope is found in this verse, and it's the obvious one right at the end of the verse. God is faithful. God is infinite in all of his perfections, including his dependability. He is utterly reliable. It is who he is and it is simply not possible for God to be unfaithful. He does what he commits to. He keeps his promises. His covenant is his sworn bond and it will not be broken. So if our hope is made up of the promises of God in Jesus Christ, 
our hope is secure. If you hope that I will do a certain thing for you next week or next month, you might be disappointed. Even if your and my intention are good, that doesn't mean I have the power to do it. I might not even be here. You might not be here. No one knows what a day brings forth. I might forget. You might change your mind about what you want. On and on, the list of things could go that show that we aren't necessarily and perfectly faithful, even when we want to be. But God is. He can't be any other way. Great is your faithfulness, O God our Father. And so we not only have a hope, we can have complete confidence in that hope. Our hope cannot fail. Again, this is so very different than human, merely human hope. Well, let me give you three uses and then we will, uh, two uses, I'm sorry, and then we'll be done. This is a very simple verse. And of course the application is quite simple. Um, brothers and sisters, obey the command. <laughs> Do what it says. Keep holding fast. Hope and keep hoping. Exercise faith in God's promises. Now, almost all of you have been in uh, settings with me where you've been taught the three elements of biblical saving faith. And I won't call on any of you um, but you remember what they are, I'm sure. Right? The first is there's a knowledge component of true faith. Again, faith isn't faith in faith. It's not belief in belief. It's belief in certain realities, certain truths that God has told us. That's the first part. The second is we have to assent or affirm those things. We have to believe they're true. I mean, the fact that God does and he knows they're true, you have to too. It's not God's faith. This is your faith we're talking about. So you have to know the content of it. You have to agree with it. And then finally, you have to trust yourself to it and him, right? Entrustment. So when I urge you to obey this command to exercise faith in keeping God's promises of hope, what am, I, what am I asking you to do? What am I urging upon myself? Well, first, to learn the content of hope. Just as you need to know certain things in order to believe, in order to be saved, you need to know certain things. You need to know the content of hope so that when you believe them, you can find true comfort. You can find real strength. So search out from the New Testament in particular those promises of God for your future. Drink them in. Rehearse them. Post them. Memorize them. Pray over them. Fix the promises of God in your mind so that when the evil day comes and you are 
threatened with losing your hope, when you are wavering, they will be right there. You won't have to go, oh, does, does God say anything about this? Be ready. Learn the content of hope. Find the promises of God and fix them in your minds. Drive them down deeply into your souls. And then believe them. Agree with God about them. Confess. Agree with God about the promises of hope. What God says about the future is unalterably true. So don't be like the wicked person that Peter knew when he was writing 2 Peter. You know, the one who said, uh, oh, it's been so long. It's been like 30 years or something, the most, maybe 25. It's been so long. Is he coming back or not? Um, where's the promise of his return? On and on did the wicked mouth spout nonsense. What does Peter say? Don't judge God like you judge men. It's, it's true. God is faithful. Jesus is coming back. <laughs> Jesus is coming back. And then when you know these promises that are to make up our hope, when you believe these promises that make up our hope, then trust yourself to them. Give yourself to the promises of God. In other words, live not like they're true, live because they're true. That's our first use. Obey the command. Learn, learn the contents of hope. Believe them and live according to it. Right? Now let me give you some examples of, of that um, with our second and final point. Why should you do this? Americans are very good at asking that question. What's in it for me? Why should I do this? Well, God in his great condescension knows that all men throughout time and history, uh, throughout time and space have, have asked that question. What's in it for me? Here's what's in it for you, Christian. Comfort. That, that's what's in it for you, comfort. God doesn't have to be reassured. He knows all this is going to happen. We're the ones who need to be reassured. We're the ones who need hope, subjective hope. We're the ones who need to set our minds, our hearts, our futures on these things. And when we begin to doubt, will Christ return? Is is he really coming back? I mean, it's not just been 25 years, it's been 2,000 years. I mean, is he really coming back? I mean, is he really bodily gonna descend in the clouds and come back? Or perhaps one of the truths about the future that is so very helpful and meaningful to you, one that God has shown you from his word and, and you cling to. Will there ever really be justice Some of you have, have had great evil done to you. And the person who did it to you has not been and cannot be properly punished in this life. It's not possible for human beings to 
fix all of those injustices? Well, you may begin to doubt. It, is there ever going to be justice in the world? How will these wrongs be righted? Or perhaps for you, the concern is, is kind of in reverse. Is it really, are we really sure that my sins aren't going to be brought up again? Really? Because I find that terrifying. If they're brought up again, I'm, I'm doomed. I, I know I've done wrong. What? Will the misery that I caused other people by my sin really be turned to joy in me and them if they're believers? Really? Can I really be happy in heaven? I, I, I mean, I feel permanently scarred by certain things that have happened to me. I, I'm never going to forget them in this life, and they, they affect me. In fact, I, I don't really always live wisely or normally. I, I've kind of developed these ethical twitches. I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm damaged. I'm broken. For some of you, it's not so much the, the ethical damage. It might be something as simple as, I'm in, I'm in terrible pain. <laughs> I, I'm in so much pain, I, I can't function right, at least part of the time. I, I can't think right. I, it makes it so easy to sin, to snap at my husband or wife, to not do my duties, to this and that. And, and it's getting worse and worse. There's no human hope for me. It, you see, this verse is for things like this. It's for real life. The promises of God are for your real life, exactly where you are right now, with these kinds of soul and body concerns. God gives this verse for your comfort, for your strengthening, for your hope, that your subjective hope would be founded on the objective hope of God. But when all of these kinds of things fill our mind, let's hold fast to our hope. We have good reason to. God is faithful, right? And his son's salvation meets our every need. We will be saved to the uttermost. So does he really have answers for these kinds of things? And, and I've just jotted down about a half a dozen. I'm going to list them quickly. Remember, your job is to go find these and many, many more in, in, the, in the scriptures. Some of you need a home. Oh, you may have a place where you stay out of the weather. But for some of you, you may need a home. You feel acutely that this world is not your home. You don't fit here. You're never really quite at rest. You never really relax. Well, here's what Jesus promises when he returns. There are many rooms in my father's house. If it weren't so, he wouldn't have told you. It's a promise. It's real. It's true. 
You can believe it. You can have faith in it. Oh, it's hope because it hasn't happened yet, but it will absolutely happen. You will know the kind of wholeness, peace, rest that the word home is meant to evoke in you. And it certainly does in our culture, right? We, we want to go home. We, we feel at ease or safe in our home. Well, that, to an infinite degree, is what we're promised in the salvation of Jesus Christ in the new covenant. That's part of our hope. Here's another one. Romans 8.30. Glorification. Glorification. That's your sanctification perfected. You are a miserable wretch, almost as bad as me. Oh, this body of death, will I ever throw it off? Will I ever stop sinning? Will I ever learn how to quit doing? Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Not in your own strength, not in your own power. When Jesus comes back, you will be changed in an instant. That's how easy it will be for him. He's already earned it. It'll be applied in a flash and you will forever not sin. Here's the really good news. Not only will you be glorified and not sin, you will not be able to sin. You will be so perfected that you will never sin. You cannot sin. There will be no temptation, yes. Wouldn't matter if there was. You will be made like Jesus. You will see him as he is, and you will be made like him. That's the content of hope. That's the promise of hope. You need to learn it. You need to believe it. You need to act it. You need to entrust yourself to it. Revelation 21.4. God promises to wipe away every tear. How is that possible? I don't know. I just have the promise of God, though. I just have the word of God. It must be true. He says there will be no more death. All the former things will be passed away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, put them away in the past. <laughs> Get rid of them so they never come back. That's exactly what he's going to do. He promises in the next chapter, there will no longer be any curse. <sighs> All the fallenness that you and I too often think is just like ordinary, all of that's going to be removed. You think the world's a beautiful place now? It's nothing like the new heavens and the new earth. As one man has said, yeah, we see in 3D then, that'll be more like 4D. That'll be like inexpressibly bright and beautiful and glorious. And that's true. That's the content of our hope. B believe it. Live it. Use it when something terrible happens in your life or when the threat of something terrible happens in your life. Revelation 22.4, we are promised, it is promised that we will see God's face and worship him. We will be able to safely see God in Jesus Christ and not be destroyed.
First Corinthians tells us in multiple places of the glories of the resurrection body. No more back and neck pain so severe you can't think straight. No more plantar fasciitis that makes playing the piano a real act of love toward us. No weakness, only the uninterrupted strength that comes with perfection. A body like unto Jesus's. And again, we could, we could go on and on with these promises, but the point is this. All of these things that trouble us in this life, or, and they maybe don't even happen to us, but we just we worry about them because they might happen to us. That's why God gives us hope. That doesn't mean that nothing bad will happen to you. It means that when something bad does happen to you, you have a reason to look at it as temporary. And from the hand of a loving Heavenly Father, not something that's inescapably bad that will ruin your eternity. It will not. the loss of a loved spouse or child or grandparent or other good things that you may have worked hard for in your life. You may have worked hard for material things, not in a sinful way, just in a, a way of God's blessing. And one day, in one day, it can just up and disappear. More than one of us has experienced that. It's just gone through no fault of your own. In fact, perhaps because of your righteousness. What do you do in that day? Do you just give up? No. There's a content to hope. Believe it. <laughs> know what it is. Believe it. And trust God in it. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let's pray.